0: think about the law we always think about the ten commandments don't we right as 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 people who know the church people who believe in the bible we always just think about the church and that was received in mount sinai, sinai as kind of like the foundational covenant in which god has made with man in other words the way that god connects with us the way that god has spoken to us is through the ten commandments right well <clears throat> We always assume that because we know that Jesus says that there's two great commandments, love God and love one another. That's kind of how the Ten Commandments are summed up and wrapped up. And so that's how we define or attempt to define how we should view God and ultimately how God deals with us. So just love God, we're told, and love one another, we're told, right? But in this chapter, you realize that this covenant of grace is actually really the controlling reality in the way God deals with us. covenant of grace can you say the covenant of grace now my first point is this god he offers himself as the promise he offers himself as the promise so in this chapter god he promises abram two things descendants right as many as the stars in the heaven and secondly land the land that was eventually overtaken led by king david and his son king solomon Now, from the past few chapters we read, it would seem like God's promises were constantly about land, constantly about wealth, and all those things that we've heard last week, promised right to Abram in good faith. Like God, he still blessed Abram with worldly wealth, He says, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you all these riches and all this fame. But as you continue to study Genesis, I think it's pretty clear that those promises the promises of land, the promises of people, the promises of nation that they're all just a little glimpse, that they're all a gesture, a symbol of a much greater reality which God promised Abram. God was saying to Abram, You see, all these things that I'm promising you today, all these things I'm promising to give you, well, I'm not giving them to you for it to be an end within itself. Like, I'm not giving you money so that you're like, yes, money is all that I need. I'm not giving you land so that you think, yes, land and, and prestige and reputation is all that I need. He said, I'm giving you all these things because through these things, I offer myself to you. You see, I am bigger than the things I give you. We want the giver, not the gift. We want the blesser, not the blessing. You hear what I'm saying? And so here's what's really cool. The promise of God himself is extended not just to Abram, but to you and me. Not only does he say, Abram, I'm giving myself to you, but today, this 21st century, to the people here, God says, I give myself to you. Can I hear? Hallelujah. That's pretty cool. Now, you're all probably thinking, what does Abram and his promises of his family and his money and his life have to do with me? An American, thousands of miles away from the Holy Land, someone who obviously can't speak the biblical languages, as someone who has no Jewish descent. Do you guys remember, have you you guys ever gone to Sunday school and learned this one song called Father Abraham? Right? Some of you guys, you probably learned that. It's a very militant song, right? Because they always force you to start marching. Right? (laughs) Like, Father Abraham had many, I'm not going to sing for you guys, but Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And the teacher, like, looks at you and says, now you sing it. And you're like, Father Abraham had many, right? And you're, just, you're singing out of fear. But what was interesting is this, because as you as you're sing that, you're just thinking about the pictures that you've seen of Abraham. And I'm looking at the pictures that we see that are stuck on felt, and this guy does, does not look like me. He's Middle Eastern. Most likely, usually he's, he's, he looks Caucasian, really. And here I am as this little Korean kid, and I'm thinking, I'm blessed because of him, and he is my father? Like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not connecting the two here. He's my father? How, how does that make any sense to me? How does who he is and what he's done and what's been promised to him, how does it apply to me? And so let's use Scripture to interpret Scripture, Amen. In Galatians chapter 3, Apostle Paul argues that the real descendant God had in mind wasn't anything or anyone else but Jesus Christ alone. It says in verse, verse 3, 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. But that's not all. These blessings and promises of God, which are inherited by Christ are then given to all those who know Christ. So it's not just a blessing of inheritance to the Son of God, Jesus himself, but to those who are in Christ. Meaning, it's not just for Christ, but those who are also in Christ. Who God is and what he offers and how he lifts up his Son is not just towards his Son, but also those who say, Christ, you are my King. Jesus, you are my Savior. It says in verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So if the descendants are not just physical Jews, but rather those who have faith in Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Gentile means a non-Jew, meaning pretty much all of us here, then what exactly was God's promise to Abraham? This was his promise to Abraham's descendants. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I mean, let's think about that for a second, folks. Let's think about all the times that we've prayed to God and asked him for something. Like when we asked him for a promise or a blessing, maybe he asked recently for him to take a pain away Or to bring some sort of reconciliation between us and maybe a mom or dad or sibling that we've kind of broken relationships with. Think of all the times that we've actually prayed and asked for a husband or a wife or asked for a kid or asked for a career or a lucrative job or whatever. And look, it's not wrong for us to ask for these things because we know that God can and he has blessed people with these things. But God is saying something profound to Abram in this chapter. He's saying this, look, all these things are fine. All these things are fine. All these things are good. In fact, all these things I will give to you, but I want to give you something even more special. I want to give you the gift of myself. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. I want you to know that I, nothing else, not wealth, not prestige, not reputation, not success or accomplishments, nothing else can do what I can do because I am the true satisfier of your soul. Nothing else can do what I do. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And from that came this special relationship that we later includes the forgiveness of sins, resurrection, life in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and dwelling intimately in the lives of his people, eternal fellowship with the Father, a personal relationship with God. You know how many people say, you know God? Yes, I know God. You get to have a personal relationship with God himself, and yet we're like, yeah, 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 all that's great and fine and dandy, but I really prefer an easy life right now. I really prefer a comfortable life here. I'd like a career where I'll have power and prestige. I want a wife or a husband that I can make a family together with. And God's saying, look, if you have me, then you'll have everything you're looking for because I am what you are really looking for because you were made for me. You were made for me. You weren't made just to have a six-figure salary. You weren't made just to drive a fast car. You weren't made just to have a wall plastered with diplomas. You were made for me. Today, I want you guys to think about and consider, what is your greatest treasure? What's your greatest treasure? The reason why when we read through Genesis and all we see is this emphasis on land, emphasis on descendants, emphasis on wealth, and all this material stuff, and all that stuff is because it's so important to us. You read the way that you want to read. We're reading with worldly eyes of flesh rather than with the lens of the gospel. But know this, material gain, health and wealth, prosperity, ease and comfort... That is not what God has designed to give you, and if you have it, great. But your Christian life, whether rich or poor, whether healthy or sick, whether highly accomplished or not, whether married, single, or divorced, if you find in all of your life, if you find that all you really have is Christ, then know that you have what God has designed to give you. That means you got the richest and the truest blessing that he sent the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, to us in order to reconcile us to himself so that we might forever, not just a moment, not just for this time, but forever know him, make him known, and enjoy him forever. Amen? My second point is that God accepts those who believe in him. Verse 6 is probably one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. This verse is so important. It's been repeated more than three times in the New Testament. So let me unpack it for a minute here, okay? So today, it's all about having power and control. It's all very Oprah-esque, okay? Power and control within ourselves to do whatever we want. If we just believe in ourselves, turn to your neighbor and say, believe in yourself, See, here's the thing. Maybe that's true in terms of trying to get out of bed or trying to pass your exam. Maybe that's true. But it is impossible when it comes to our faith and is exactly the opposite of what God is saying here in Genesis. There is no power. Listen to me clearly. There is no power within faith itself. There's no special power in an attitude of trust. Do you know why Abram's faith was strong? Because it wasn't the power of faith itself, but it was was the object of his faith. Meaning Abram's faith was settled in the conviction that God would do what he had promised. Like, Abram, he didn't just go out and do crazy stuff because he had faith. No, his faith was led by the promises of God. And so Abram took God at his word, and that attitude was credited to him as righteousness. And all that to say what? God accepted Abram because God, because Abram believed in God. That's all. Because Abram believed in God. Not just believed in a God, believed in God. So what is that we have to believe? Well, a Christian is informed by just facts. If I'm at Niagara Falls and I see a guy who effortlessly tight ropes across the Niagara, then he does it with a wheelbarrow. Then he puts bricks inside that wheelbarrow filled with heavy bricks and all that stuff, and he goes back and forth, back and forth. In my mind, as I'm watching, I'm thinking this is a very capable tight rope walker for sure. The facts are there. I'm seeing it. I make the observation. I believe that he could do it again and again and again. And I also believe that he can do it with a person in that wheelbarrow. And if he said, okay, we want you. I want you to go in this wheelbarrow. I would say, uh, no. No, I wouldn't. Just because you have facts doesn't mean you truly believe. Because to truly believe is to get in that wheelbarrow. You can say that God made the world. You can say that God loves you. You can say that God did this and God did that, but to really believe is to trust in his promises and to live your life in response to those promises. To be a believer, you have to get in that wheelbarrow. To live as a believer, you must know and live out the gospel. And what is the gospel, people? God, out of His love for the sinful world, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived in perfect righteousness before His Father and then willingly went to the cross. He laid down His righteous life to pay the penalty for yours and my sins. God accepted the atoning death and raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, He promises forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who abandon their confidence in themselves, turn from their sins that God hates, and by faith rest. And surrender and place all their confidence in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is the gospel. You believe it. You live by it. God says, you're mine and I'm yours. But it seems impossible, doesn't it? That God would just forgive me. That God would just, the sins in my life, the things I've messed up in my life and I got a lot, that he would just take it and put it on his perfect and righteous and blameless son how does that make any sense i'm so jacked up i'm so screwed up why would god take that and transfer it to him and then and then credit me with his righteousness why would god forgive someone like me maybe you're thinking i'll never change I have too much anger. I have too much pain. I've got too much bitterness going on. This is who I am. Look, whether you think your sins are too great or that you are unchangeable, just know that that's exactly why we so desperately need a Savior because we clearly can't save ourselves, even on your best day. It can't be done in our time, on our time, and by our merit. You know, I remember a friend. I remember talking talked to a friend um, a while back ago. And I asked him, I said, how are you doing with God? And he said, look, man, don't get on me again. I said, no, I'm just a honest question. How are you doing with the Lord? And he said, look, my dad started going to church later in life. My older friends, they started settling down and going to church after they had kids. I'll probably do the same thing. First of all, he didn't even answer my question because I wasn't asking about church attendance. But secondly, what he said I think rings true for a lot of people. Whether, they're, whether they genuinely believe in God or not, essentially they say stuff like this, let me have my fun. Let me do what I want to do right now in my life. Let me pursue my own ambitions and my own dreams and desires. And when I'm ready, when I want to, then I'll follow Jesus. There are even some who say, like, I'll I'll take that leap of faith on my deathbed, as if they think that everyone's going to die comfortably in bed surrounded by their loved ones. Look, people, you don't choose to be saved. You are chosen to be saved. You don't choose to say, okay, God, I'm ready. It doesn't work that way. Because none, no one wants God on their best day. You must be chosen. God has to save you. We can't do it. We're all in this pit of despair, and we can't claw ourselves out. We can't get ourselves out. It can only be God who says, I will redeem you. I will restore you. I will reconcile you. I will be the one to save you. The impossibility of salvation is that we have no control, prediction, or influence in, in when, how, and where we get saved because salvation alone belongs to our God. Amen? I got one last point to make. How do we know if he place our trust and faith in him that he'll save us? How do we know that his promises are true? And here it is, because God himself is our guarantee. God himself is our guarantee. So as amazing as everything is here, we see a little nervousness from Abram. A little shaking maybe of his hand and certainly of his faith here in verse eight. He says, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, I think context is important, right? So in order for us to understand what's going on here, there has, we have to understand kind of ancient cultural practices. So verses, from verses 9 through 18, these verses, they assume that you guys already know how covenants were made. This is a solemn ceremony, so here's a procedure. People that were making this covenant, they will come and bring sacrificial animals for the ceremony, okay? Then they cut the animals in half, split them right down the middle, And after that, they placed the various halves on either side of the path, down the middle. Then the two parties would come, and they they were making the covenant. They would come, and they would walk between the dismembered carcasses. And as they did this, they would pledge their faithfulness to whatever terms that they had agreed on. Now, I can tell from the looks of you right now that this seems gory to us. I get it. It's gory. But you know what? The symbolism here is crazy powerful. Because what these two parties... So the covenant we're saying to each other is this, get this. As they're walking up and down these dismembered animal body parts, they were saying, may I also be like these dismembered animals if I fail to keep my word to you. So Abram, he had some concerns. Actually, he had some doubts about God's promises to him. So God told him to go get some animals and to set up this covenant ritual. So Abram goes, and he comes back, and he brings back a heifer. He brings back a goat, a ram, a dove, a pigeon. Abram knew the routine, so he divided the animals, and he placed the opposite parts from each other. You see, God was about to make a covenant, an agreement, a pact with Abram, but then God did something weird. He didn't show up, or at least he didn't return right away. So Abram, he was kind of waiting He waited. And all of a sudden, birds of prey began to swoop down and to feed on the carcasses. And as that was happening, Abram, wanting to make sure that the sacrifice, that it was unblemished and that it remained undefiled, he'd go and shoo the birds away, chase the birds away. he constantly do that. And finally, as the sun was setting, God, he caused a deep sleep and darkness to come over Abram. Apparently exhausted, Abram, he was out, decommissioned. I mean, what a clear picture of man's inability, futility to earn God's favor. Constantly chasing, constantly trying to keep things right, constantly trying to be good enough, constantly doing all that. Does that sound like you today? I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Well, how do you know you'll get to heaven? How do you know you'll meet God? Well, you know, I'm hoping that God will accept me based on my best based on me shooing and chasing the birds away as to the best of my ability. But then a strange thing happened here. You see, God, he shows up. And he appeared in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Does that image sound familiar? That's the way he would later lead his people in the wilderness, remember? The pillar of cloud and fire. And so all alone... God all alone, without Abram, without Abram. (coughs) Abram's out, remember? He's passed out. I don't know where he's at. All alone, God alone walked down between the two animals. God alone passed down between (laughs) the sacrificed animals. You see, had nothing to do with you. Had nothing to do with me. God did it. Alone. Do you understand what happened here? God made a covenant with Abram. God established a new relationship with Abram. But only God, while it was between those two, it was only God who took the oath. I want you to get this here for a second. The promises of God, his covenant, his pact, his agreement, hinged and rested on God alone. It was always on him, not on you and not on me, not on what you have to say or what I have to say, not in who you are and what you have done, not in what you have promised to do, not in your holiness or in your greatness, not in your biblical knowledge, not in your intact marriage, not in your scandal-free life, but in who God is. The promises of God through his son is guaranteed only because God himself guarantees it and it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. This is why the greatest blessing of our lives and eternity is none other than Jesus. Because unlike anything else in this world, Jesus is the only certainty we have. How many times have you placed your faith in the things of the world and how many times has it failed you? Even family will fail us. That's just a reality. Life will fail us. World will fail us. Christ is our only certainty and the assurance of our salvation. If it's if it's dependent on you to save yourself, then you can pretty much bet that there is no assurance of your salvation. Because how many times does your mood change day to day? How many times do our hearts change day to day? But no, we know right here, that it is God, not us, but God alone who walked past the, the pieces. Therefore, it was God who did the saving. We cannot earn it, it's futile. Despite our best efforts, salvation is this not by hard work, not by just living a moralistic life, not by saying I'm better than you or more accomplished than you. Salvation is pure grace because it was God and God alone who took the oath. It was God. That covenant that was made between God and Abram may have been figurative, but what was symbolic became a reality for us in that the ever-living God took on human nature. He tasted death in the place of us who are promise breakers. You see, Jesus bore our punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and that we might be his people. On the cross, God, he carried out to the fullest extent what he had promised in his covenant with Abram. God, he walked between the split sacrifice. And how was that promise kept? How was it guaranteed? By the pouring of the blood of his one and only son to be that guarantee of his promise of the gospel of Jesus. This is why Christ is the greatest blessing from God to us. This is why even if you lose everything else in the world, even if you have failed marriage, even if you lose all your money, even if all your friends abandon you, but you have Christ, you still have everything and more. Because to understand what it took for us to get him, you now know that there's nothing in life to fear. Sickness, I have no fear. Poverty, I have no fear. Judgment, I have no fear. Suffering, persecution, job termination, death of a loved one, abandonment, loneliness, all that, I have no fear. Because they are temporary. But the gift of God through His Son, Jesus, is eternal. It's certain. If it rested on you and how you were doing and you have to walk through the split sacrifice, you can never know for sure. But when you look away from yourself and rest solely upon Jesus and know that it was God who made the promise, then you can have absolute peace and absolute assurance of your salvation and know that though you may not have much in this world, Because of God's grace, you have the greatest blessing any man, any woman, any person could ever want. Jesus is the greatest blessing. Jesus is our guarantee. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity just to come here and hear your word. I know that's perhaps a lot different from the songs and tunes being sung by the world right now. We believe that we have to change things in our lives and that through the government, through politics, through this or that, no. We want to place our faith not in the things of the world because we know that it will not last We want to place our faith in the one who will last. Jesus, that's you, and it's always been you. Maybe right now a lot of us have to really kind of explore our own hearts and see where we're at. Maybe we're still questioning and teetering on that fence, should I, shouldn't I? Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I want both. You see, it's not about just you choosing to know Jesus and to have Jesus. We don't get to choose him, he gets to choose us. But what can we do? The only thing we can do and that is acknowledge that he's God, acknowledge the fact that we don't have all things figured out, acknowledge the fact that maybe humility, maybe surrendering Maybe giving up all things and saying, you know what, God? You're God and I'm not. Make yourself known to me. Lead me to the cross today. Let's take a moment and just pray the way that you feel that God is leading you in your prayer, okay? Let's pray, and we'll go into our last song.